0: The following message is by Dr. Derek Brown, pastor and elder at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. We'll turn to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. And as you're turning there, I just want you to think with me for a moment, a little mental experiment. Ima- use our imaginations. I want you to consider what a healthy, physically healthy person might look like. And I'm not even talking about bodily shape. I'm talking about health in terms of their internal systems, their nervous system, cardiovascular system, the filtering system of the liver and the kidneys. I want you to consider what does physical health look like? Just ponder that for a, a minute. Typically, we would say that the, uh, the organs are functioning in their intended capacity. The various systems are functioning well. The cardiovascular system, we've already mentioned the nervous system, the filtering system's The eyesight, the hearing, the smell, the taste, all of these things are functioning well. A healthy body is typically a body without much pain because all of these systems are working well. The eyes are bright, the energy is high, the mind is clear, the bones and muscles are strong. And there are probably some of us who are thinking, well, Derek, it's hard for me to conceive of that because, well, I'm getting older and up there in age, and the more old we get, we start to suffer more and more physical ailments, and the eye start begins to dim, and old sports injuries get more aggravated, if you know what I'm talking about, and come on, and arthritis sets in, and the the digestive system doesn't work as well, Uh, Lord have mercy, and we are beset with new kinds of aches and pains, just they show up, you don't even know why you have them anymore, they just, you hurt, and you're like, did I sleep wrong? Why do I, I'm supposed to heal while I sleep, and you get pain from sleeping, and uh, we're not as agile as we once were, and some of us have lifelong debilitating ailments that have kept us from many normal activities. There are people in our congregation who have suffered with lifelong ailments. There are some in our congregation who have chronic disease, so it may be difficult for us to conceive of this kind of physical health, but even then, even though some of us are getting up there in age and the ailments are accumulating and some of us have suffered a lifelong trouble with physical ailments, we still do have an idea of what physical health looks like. We can have some picture of it. And similarly, in Scripture, Paul gives us a picture of what corporate health looks like in a local body. He gives us a snapshot, as it were, in Titus chapter 2. He gives us a picture of a healthy congregation. And so for this week and next week, we're going to study this passage, verses 1 through 14, and we're going to consider the characteristics or the qualities, you might say, of a healthy church. And this is by no way and by no means a rebuke to CBC because from my perspective as a pastor, I see a lot of health going on in this church. I thank God so often for what he's doing in this church and the hand that he has upon this church and the way he's grown and protected and preserved and bred health into this body. But woe to us if we ever think that we've arrived. Amen? We need to always be striving forward for greater health, greater Obedience, greater growth, greater maturity as a body. This is the picture that Paul has in Ephesians 4. He views the body as constantly growing up in this maturity, this health, this knitting together of the various ligaments of the body in this constant pursuit of greater health and maturity. So this is by no means a rebuke, though some of the words might be sharp and some of them might hurt a little bit, right? But in order to stay healthy, you got to go to the doctor sometimes and get a little work, and get a little surgery in order to maintain that health. And so that's what we're doing today. So, healthy church, qualities of a healthy church. We're going to go through this passage. We're going to look at five of them today and four of them next week. And I'm trying to split it in a in a logical place, but we do have to stop right at verse 8. And it might felt like we dropped off a little bit, so that's just a kind of way to get you to come back next week. So, um that's what I'm doing, but that, that's the goal here today, is to talk about the qualities of a healthy church, to get us to think about CBC specifically, and that's the right thing to do. Paul, Paul is not writing to some church out there somewhere, or the universal church out there somewhere, Just can't, you don't really know where it is, he's talking to a local congregation. The letters in the New Testament are written to specific local congregations, and that should help us to see the importance of and the centrality of the local congregation. So we're not talking about the health of the church out there somewhere. We're talking about the church, this local church, specifically CBC, as we apply this passage from a local church to ours today. So the first thing I want us to notice is that a healthy church blends sound doctrine with real life. A healthy church blends sound doctrine with real life. Paul begins his instruction to Titus here, Titus was the pastor of this congregation, and he was instructed by Paul to do various things to get this congregation in order. And he's contrasting Titus with a group of people that were apparently making their rounds or who were in the presence of the people in this congregation. He described them like this. He says, To the pure all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Verse 16, chapter 1. They profess to know God. But they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. And then he goes on to say, But as for you. So he's contrasting Titus with this group of people over here who profess to know God. They, as we'll see, they might even have sound doctrine. They profess to know God, yet by their deeds they deny him. So there's this bifurcation of belief. And life that Paul says is not to characterize Titus, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And then he goes on to talk very practically about the life and the conduct and the character of the people in the congregation. He is blending together seamlessly life and doctrine, truth and character. Let God, what God has put together, let no man rend asunder. These things are always meant to go together. Doctrine and the life it's meant to produce. These people's lives did not, these people who professed to know God, but denied Him by their works, their lives did not accord with or correspond with or fit with that sound doctrine. Titus's role as a pastor of this church was to make sure not only to teach people the truth, but to teach them how to live in a way that corresponded with that truth. The word sound, you might be wondering, where, does, where do you get healthy here? Derek, I don't see the word health in here anywhere. The word health is actually uh, the word sound here in verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. You could say, teach what accords with healthy doctrine. That really is the word. It's kind of a picturesque word. I really like that word. The doctrines of the Christian faith, the biblical teaching about God and Christ and the gospel, the forgiveness of sins, they are spiritually healthy doctrines. They produce health and life in the the person who believes them. But these doctrines must work themselves into the individual Christian and the corporate life of the church. In fact, you cannot separate the doctrines of the Christian faith apart. Uh, You can't separate them from the life they're meant to produce as though you can go to Jesus' teaching and start separating, oh, there's a truth about God, there's doctrine, and there's the way he wants us to live. It's all wrapped up together. You, You probably can't even really make that separation, right? That's what's happening with this group in verse 16. They profess to know God. They likely have sound doctrine, but they are not allowing that doctrine to get into their life. So Paul is telling Titus that you must teach the congregation, the people, what accords with sound doctrine, what kind of life fits with Christianity. What does it look like? When we profess to know Jesus Christ, when we profess to know a holy God, the creator of the universe, the one who is all holy and beautiful and wonderful and just and righteous, when we claim to know him and to be delivered from our sins, what kind of life accords with or fits with or corresponds with that profession or with that doctrine, with those truths. A person that does not live in accordance with sound doctrine is like someone... This is, this is the image I got this week. See if this fits for you. Someone who, who professes truth, who professes perhaps the Reformed faith, professes the truths of Christianity, they've got sound doctrine... But who doesn't live in accordance with that truth is kind of like watching someone put on a handcrafted Maurice Sedwell custom-made suit. Now, these suits, have you ever heard of these? They, these custom-made suits, they are, they're beautiful. They're, they're hand-cut and hand-sewn. No machines involved in the entire process. Okay, These are fabulous suits. They're custom-tailored for each client. Get this. The entry-level suits usually run about 5,000 English pounds. You knew I was going to say English pounds, didn't you? Uh, because these are created in England, and which is about $6,500 American. And they can run as high as $15,000 for a suit. I get excited when there's a sale at Dillard's and you can get them for half off. And, <laughs> and that's about $150, but that's for another time. To put on one of these bespoke suits and then go wrestle in pig swine or wrestle in a sloppy pigsty with the swine is completely unfitting. To put on one of these suits, custom-tailored, crafted, beautiful, hand-cut, sewn, tailored just for you, and then to go wrestle, pigs, wrestle swine in a gross, muddy pigsty is totally unfitting. It does not accord with the value Of these suits. And if you saw someone, if you knew the value of those suits and then saw someone put one on and then go do that, you would be appalled. What a waste. That's not fitting. That doesn't correspond with the value and the worth of that suit, that beautiful suit. In the same way, there's conduct and character qualities that either fit and correspond with Christianity or that do not. Paul's going to lay out in this passage now the kind of life, the kind of corporate, individual and corporate life that fits with Christian doctrine? You believe in God? You believe in Jesus Christ? You believe in justification by faith alone? You believe in sanctification? You believe in election? What kind of life fits with that kind of belief and profession? Teach what accords with healthy doctrine. A healthy church, this is This is the point. A healthy church is a church that is not content with merely knowing doctrine intellectually. Forbid that to ever be the case at CBC. Sound doctrine is necessary. Here's the word. Sound doctrine is necessary but not sufficient to breed life into the local church. The doctrine must be taken into the heart and integrated into the life of the individual and the corporate body in deliberate ways. That's what we're talking about here. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. It is the role of the pastor to teach it and then to help the people integrate it into the life. And that is where health comes from. So what kind of life teaches or accords with sound teaching? What kind of life corresponds with the beauty and the goodness of Christian doctrine? Verse 2, older men are to be sober ...minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. It begins with the older men. You might be wondering, why begin with the men? I I think, given the the drift of Scripture in this regard, the health of the corporate body is dependent in large measure on the godliness of its men. Not only the godliness of of the men, but in large measure the long-term health of the local church is dependent upon the older men in that local church following and walking in this kind of life and lifestyle. And here's here's the reason why. Regardless of your formal role in the church, men, we have an implicit leadership status among the members of Christ's church. God has made men to be the leaders among God's people, and that's not just for those who are in formal leadership positions like elder or deacon Or even a Sunday school teacher. By our very designs, guys, God has made us to be leaders. And you can see this in the way that God started things off in Genesis chapter 2. He created the man first, and he entrusted the man with the care and protection of the garden. He entrusted him with the divine commandment. And then from the man, he created the woman. Equal to the man in her ontology, equal to the man in her bearing the image of God, but nevertheless, the man was to be created as the leader, and Paul affirms that order of creation in First Timothy chapter 2 and 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So God has made us men to be leaders in that sense, and it, it doesn't matter if you have a role of pastor or teacher or deacon. And this might begin to overwhelm you a little bit, but it doesn't need to because one of the foundational and fundamental ways that we lead is by how? Example. And that's what Paul's getting at right here. Older men are to be sober-minded. Sober-minded. What does it mean to be sober-minded? Well, to be sober, first of all, means that we are in control of our faculties and an intoxicating substance isn't in control of our faculties. We are. We're sober. So it has to do with intoxicating substances like alcohol or other kinds of substances. Substances. Obviously, uh, a godly man will be sober in this respect. The, the scripture does not forbid the drinking of alcohol. I even mentioned this today in our young professionals class. It doesn't forbid it. What it does forbid is drunkenness because then that substance has control over you. You no longer have control. Godly men are to be controlled by the Holy Spirit, not controlled by an intoxicating Substance, But this word sober-minded also carries connotations of level-headedness. Level-headedness. You, 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 know, you know guys like this are just level-headed through thick and thin. They're just steady on. They're not cast to and fro by the various troubles of life. Steadiness, level-headedness. A sober mind is a mind that is not carried away by panic, by fear, by fuzzy thinking, or sinful worry. It's a clear mind. A sober mind is a clear mind. It's a mind that sees things the way they really are, even if it's difficult to see things the way they really are, even if you don't like the way things really are. A sober mind is able to assess accurately what is going on, even if you don't like what's going on, even if you wish what was going on wasn't happening. It's manly to be like this. It's good to be like this, to be sober-minded. And this is vital, guys, in our marriages a man who is beset by a panicked, worried mind and who unloads these worries and panics onto his wife and his children will stir up anxieties and panic among his family members that they were never meant to bear. If you watch a movie, there's a reason why. It's, it's, it, the, the audience knows that when there's trouble with the, the group and there's impending danger upon the group, for a man to burst in and start screaming, I don't know what to do, it's totally unfitting. We know just inherently, we just know it's just wrong. It's just, that, that, oh, that feels re- weird. They should have a sober mind, a sound mind, able to assess the situation and act accordingly. And when we're loading our, our, our families with anxieties and panic, then we are not acting with a sound mind, a sober mind. The same can be said for all men in the church and how we conduct ourselves with the, our sisters in Christ. It includes, therefore, unmarried men as well. Overall, we can say that a godly man is a sober-minded man, and the older men are to exemplify this. And I, and, and I, and I want to I be around men like this. And we'll talk about the power of godly example in a moment. But older men are to have a sober mind. They're to be sober-minded men, able to recognize what's going on, able to maintain a steadiness so that people are not set in a panic, but actually will look to them to lead. But men are also, to the older men are also to be dignified, dignified. This word carries the idea of seriousness. There's a weightiness to how the godly man approaches life. Christian doctrine is about the most important realities in the universe. Just think about it for a moment. We're talking about God. We're talking about Christ. We're talking about sin. We're talking about the forgiveness of sin. We're talking about holiness. We're talking about eternal heaven. We're talking about eternal hell. We're talking about souls that will never die going to one place or the other. We're talking about God getting his due glory. that's, That's reality. And so there's a weightiness on the godly man. Godly men approach life with the seriousness it deserves. There's plenty of joy to be had in this life, but it is a serious life nevertheless. This seriousness about God flavors the whole of their life so that they are not engaged in or talking about things that are filthy or immoral. When the fear of God and the weight and the seriousness of life is upon us, guys, we are far less likely to entertain things that are filthy and immoral. Nor should our lives be immersed in silliness or worthless pursuits. The, the more the fear of God and the weight of the seriousness of life weighs upon us, we will more and more desire to make the most of our lives for the glory of God, make the most of our time. Now, of course, this does not mean that godly men are not able, not happy and not able to enjoy life and have a good time. That is not what I am saying, Okay? But you know what? I I think we enjoy this life more in the way it was intended to be enjoyed when we are first set upon the seriousness of biblical realities in the kingdom of God. That actually produces great and uh, and deeper and more abiding joy. Just as an example, we had our deacon's retreat last week, and it was a lot of fun. There was great teaching. Bob did a great job teaching, taking us through some serious things in the Word of God. But there was also a lot of laughing. There's a lot of eating. And there are a lot of fun games. And we were just together in this room. I, had, I showed up a little late, but when I got there, we were together in this room doing the teaching and then, and then discussion. And even during the discussion of the teaching and so on, there's just a lot of hearty laughter among the guys. It was just a really good time. Laughing with one another, enjoying one another, joking over things that you can joke over in a good conscience. It was just a ton of fun. Why do I think that we could laugh so heartily? Because there's a seriousness with which these men approach life. It's one of the reasons they're deacons. There's a seriousness the way they approach their life and their ministry. They are dignified. And for that reason, we can enjoy these uh, times of of laughter and so on. Well, this dignity is also to be coupled with self-control. Self-control. And this is probably one of the more difficult requirements on this page here. Self-controlled. A healthy church is a church that is populated with men who have their appetites under control. Our sexual desires must be under control. Our spending habits must be commensurate with our income and our needs and with regular giving. We are guarding our tongue and practicing thoughtful, careful speech. We are... Reining in our tempers and not lashing out in anger, we're self control And older men are to, are to be the examples of this ability to control one's appetites. Every appetite. All these appetites are good. The appetite for food, sexual desire, even righteous anger is legitimate. Yet these are things that we must, by the Spirit, bring under control. And this kind of life accords with sound doctrine. And we look to the, Older men to be exemplary in this regard, as we ourselves, as younger men, strive after these things. Men are also to be sound in faith. What does this mean? What does it mean to be sound in faith? Well, at the very least, it means that men are not being carried to and fro by every wind and wave of doctrine, that we're not easily cast into heretical teaching and in believing wrong things about God, but it also means we just have a good walk with the Lord. We're short of our salvation. We love Him. Our life radiates a love for Christ. We, we enjoy praying to Him and worshiping Him and, and maintaining a good conscience. There's life in us. Christ is real to us and He's breeding His life in us. There's a submissive spirit to the Scripture. I think this is always such a good sign for anybody, man or woman, boy or girl. Is there a submissive spirit to the Word of God? That is a, a, sign, a sign of sound faith. You're not perfect. You make plenty of mistakes. You're headed in a good direction. But are you submissive to the Word of God? That's the question. If you are, we can, we can fix anything, really, when it comes down to it. you got a submissive heart to the Scripture. We can, we can take care of about it, just about anything. And we'll even see that. We'll even talk about that a little more because that's actually very encouraging. Uh, men are to be sound in faith. They're also to be sound in love. To be exemplary in how we love others, we should be characterized by love in our homes, in our church, at our jobs. Real-life, tangible good deeds and good works done to the people of God and to the people that God has placed into our life. A healthy love, a sound love, is a balanced love. We care for people's spiritual and temporal welfare, just like our Savior did. It's a love that's not hypocritical. Uh, Paul says in Romans twelve nine to not let our love be hypocritical or to let love be genuine, to put it positively. Let not, don't let your love be hypocritical. That's a negative translation. The positive view, uh, translation would be let your love uh, be genuine. And this means that our care for others and our love for others is not to garner the approval of others, to get people to applaud us for how we love others, or, to, or it's not quid pro quo, I'll love you a little bit if you love me back, Okay? Sound love means that we are not storing up bitterness and anger towards others, but that we are genuinely seeking to to love our fellow brother and sister and the Lord and also the people that God has put in our life. So we're sound in love. None of these things denote a perfection, but they certainly call us to pursue a particular direction, don't they? And finally, a, a godly man is sound in steadfastness. Steadfastness. What is this? This is the ability of the man to remain faithful to Christ and faithful to his church in the midst of any situation and circumstance and season. We are weathering. We are able to weather storms of trial and remaining true to the Lord and to his beloved church. We're learning wisdom as we walk with Christ through the joys and the disappointments and the pleasures and the pain of this life. It's steady. The pleasures don't blow us off into idolatry and the pains don't blow us off into bitterness we are steady steady on with the lord this is the goal of the men and this is what should typify and characterize the men who are older in the faith dignified self-controlled sound in faith in love and sound in steadfastness this is what healthy doctrine is meant to produce in our lives guys And if it's not at some level, at some basic level, then it means that this healthy food of God's Word is not making it into our spiritual digestive system. We're being malnourished. You're coming to church, and you're just smelling the cuisine and maybe taking a little taste of it. But a little taste is not going to feed the body and, and cause you to be healthy. There needs to be a taking in of the good food of God's Word through careful listening through meditation upon what you hear, by careful and deliberate application. Careful and deliberate application is, is one of the things that we, I think, miss. We think that the spiritual life is supposed to be more spontaneous than that. And this careful, deliberate application of God's word, well, that sounds kind of, I don't know, boring and legalistic, when in fact, it's the means to growth. We need to be meditating on, feeding on the word of God applying it to our lives in deliberate ways and this is what we should be aiming for and this is a lifelong process of growth and we need each other guys we need each other and it's a direction not a perfection just the other day i was i was listening to uh, a book in preparation for a class that i'm gonna, or the series that we're going to be going through in our young adults class and this book was tremendously convicting okay and and like i'm driving i'm like all right i had enough of that We'll come back to that later. And, uh, and then, it, but it resulted in me actually uh, later that week or the following week ask, asking Amy very deliberately, Amy, I need your help to be a better husband. Will you help me be a better husband? What are some ways I can improve? And she had something right away to say. She, she had an idea right away. It was a good one. She was right. She had, she had a good suggestion And so we need we need help. This is not this is not automatic. We need each other's help, and we need men. You need to be asking your wives that question: How you can be a better husband? How you can be uh, a better daddy? How you can be a better friend to others? Your wife will have a lot of good things, and we need to be able to listen. Guys, if you're not married, get good trusted friends around you and ask them. Don't wait for it. Ask people. How can I? What are some deficiencies you see in my life? How can I be a better friend? How can I be? uh, a better Christian, you, please explain these things to me as you see them. Now the question might be, who's the older man? Who are these older men? And there's debate, I, I, I've i noticed, and, and I've known this for a while, I just haven't dug into it until recently, there's debate over the age range here. Are older men 60 and older? Are they 50 and older? Who are they? And I, I think this, the better way to apply this is rather than debating over actual ages, is to read the phrase older men in relation to the other men in the local congregation, just like Titus would have done. Sure, there might be connotations of age within that uh, word, but because we're not given a specific age, let's instead read this phrase in relation to the other men in the local congregation. If you're 15, for example, then older men in relation to you would be those in their 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. Okay? I am 43, just turned 43 and the older men in my life would be those in their 50s, 60s and 70s yet i am older than some of the younger men in this group some of the high schoolers and the in the middle schoolers and even some in the uh, young professionals group i'm i'm old i'm an older man in comparison to them and yet there are men who are much older than me in this congregation who i rely upon and rely upon their example and look to them So, rather than fixate on a particular age, make it your aim, brothers, to cultivate these qualities and to understand how important it is for the health of the congregation for us to grow in these godly qualities as we grow older in age. And then all of us, all of us guys need to be looking to older men in the faith, in the congregation, in age, to be examples that we can latch on to and learn from In these ways, we should all be looking to older men. There's always someone older than us that we can look to. So, a healthy church blends sound doctrine with real life. It's populated with older godly men, but here's number three. It prioritizes female discipleship. It prioritizes female discipleship. The women of this congregation, as in any congregation, are essential to the health of the congregation. Yes, men are the leaders, but if the the women are not healthy, it will leave a real mark, a negative mark on the church. We need the ladies to be walking with the Lord. A healthy church is populated by godly men, yes, but just as importantly, it prioritizes female discipleship. Paul moves on now to discuss older women. He says, older women likewise. He says likewise because, again, he's going to address character, character qualities. So like the uh, men, the women have to be concerned with their character. They are to have a God-word seriousness about them. A God-word seriousness. Ladies, they are to be reverent in their behavior. This is not a grumpy old woman. Reverence does not mean grumpiness. It means serious joy in God. The woman knows God personally and therefore feels an appropriate weightiness in her relationship with him and in therefore her approach to life. Her behavior reflects a holy God and the truth of the gospel. She's not flipping about the things of God. There's a real joy about here, but it's a deep and serious joy and happiness. She trusts in the Lord. But she is respectful in the way she talks about him and his word and how she conducts her life. So she's reverent in her behavior. There's a reverence. There's a fear of the Lord that flavors the life of this godly older woman. And therefore, she is not a slanderer. She's not a slanderer. This is the word that we get, the word, the English, this is the Greek word that we get, the English word, diabolical. As a noun, it's used for the word, it's translated devil in the uh, New Testament, And as an adjective, it refers to someone who talks about other people in a way to secretly undermine or tarnish their reputation. That's a slanderer. A slanderer speaks lies about other people. And they do it in secret, they do it with others, they they go to another person and they slander someone else behind their back, speaking lies about them. And those lies will ruin potentially that person or at least tarnish their reputation. So a godly woman is certainly not a slanderer, but you have to ask, why this, why this in specific reference to women? Because men certainly don't get off the hook here. Guys, we can't be slanderers, right? That, that's, that's evil. And there's plenty of male slander going on these days, so we're not to have any part of that. We're to speak the truth to one another, but never in a way that is to ruin the reputation of someone else. How evil is that? But why address the women specifically in this area? Well, I think it's because of the way God has made us different. Women love to talk and converse to one another, to, to talk about their lives and the lives of others, and, and just, just talk, just, just converse and have relationship. And, um, you know, I'll come home at the end of the day, and Amy wants to talk, and I'm not as... And I don't want to talk as much, right? It's just... It's just and I don't think it's just us. I think it's just... It, it's the way, generally speaking, God has made us. And so there is a particular temptation here that, that women must be aware of, that, that, that Scripture says that the more we speak, when words are multiplied, uh, sin is unavoidable, so we have to be careful. And then in the case of, of ladies who love to talk, which is a good thing, right? We, we need that. We need that impulse to want to carry on conversation and build relationship with words. We need you, ladies. We need you to do that. But Paul's warning against slander, which can be the particular temptation of the woman, and so the older godly woman is not a slanderer. She's careful to guard her words and careful the way she talks about others. Careful not to gossip, which would be a a, a corollary concern here. We also see that she is to not be a slave of much wine, which is tied into self-control, something we've already seen about to to characterize the man, and we'll also need to characterize the young woman and also characterize the young men. So self-control is a really important character quality to develop, isn't it? But like the men, the woman is to have a control over her appetite, specifically in this area of not being a slave to much wine. Again, this is not forbidding drinking of wine, but Forbidding the being in bondage to drinking too much wine and becoming drunk, and being enslaved to something. Paul said he would not be enslaved to anything. All things are profitable, but he wouldn't be enslaved to anything. So in this particular case, it's slave to much wine. But the question is, is if you are able to partake in something like this, something that's uh, totally legitimate in terms of the drinking of wine, something that Paul would said all things are uh, acceptable, or but not all things are profitable. You have to ask yourself, is this something that you can set aside for a season? Right? Or is it taking control of you? This is an important character quality because a woman who is in bondage to drinking too much wine will be a woman who lacks self-control in other areas of her life. It's inevitable. Self-control begets self-control, you'll find, in your life. The more you exercise self-control in one area of your life, the more that will enable you to exercise self-control in another area of your life. It's quite a remarkable thing to experience. That is often the case. But also, the the flip side is the same, that a lack of self-control in one area will bleed itself over into just about every other area of uh, your life. And so Paul is calling to these women to not be uh, addicted to much wine so that they are becoming drunk and so on. And this would also have to do with any kind of intoxicating substance. Reverent in your behavior, not slanderous, not slaves of much wine. So ladies, you are to, uh, you are to call, cultivate a holy and reverent life that is characterized by wholesome, edifying, encouraging speech and self-control, but it doesn't stop with your character. Now, it has to begin there, okay? because he's going to go on to talk about teaching and you can't be someone who is living apart uh, one way and then teaching the opposite of that so that your teaching doesn't match your actual character of your life. But you are to pursue godliness, but it doesn't just stop at that pursuit of the, the character qualities. It actually has to bleed over into teaching, teaching other women. In fact, the, the, the grammatical structure here actually tell, shows us that all of these things come in one package, Uh, reverent behavior, not slandering, slave of much wine, teaching what is good, or a teacher of good. So these words here, uh, reverent, that's an adjective, not a slanderer, that's an adjective, teacher of good, that's an adjective. The only verb there is not enslave, which I think should lead us to conclude that this all comes together in one package. The character qualities that you're to pursue and the teaching of the younger women how to walk in faithfulness in the way that you have been able to learn over the course of your life walking with God. You can't separate these things as though you can be a woman in the local congregation who's pursuing godly qualities and not becoming a teacher of what is good. You are to be a teacher of what is good the same way you are to be reverent in your behavior. And You may not think of yourself as a teacher. You're thinking, oh my goodness, Derek, do you mean i got to stand up and like address ladies from a lectern and, and like, talk in, like, make an outline and teach them from the Bible. Like, no, please, I'm done with that. And that's not even what Paul's talking about. That may be included, but that kind of formal setting is not even what Paul is getting at here. This is, this is the life on life kind of teaching that happens over conversation and as you're rubbing shoulders with one another and as you are in each other's homes. That's the kind of teaching that he is referring to here. Yes, it will. Include that kind of teaching uh, more formally for women who are gifted in that area, but by and large, that's not what he's getting after here. This is the life-on-life kind of thing that's happening in one-on-one meetings, group Bible studies, visits to the house, conversations over coffee, meals, and so on. And this is part of the package. Why is it part of the package? Because of what he then goes on to say. And so train the young women. The goal is to train the young women in a particular way, in a particular direction. You're to to cultivate this holy character out of love for God. You are to be a teacher of what is good. And the end game is so that the young women are trained in godliness. In areas that are actually particularly difficult to learn godliness in. I think is going to be Paul's point here. Your character ladies, older ladies, knowledge of God's word and wisdom gathered over a lifetime of walking with God is to be put to use in training younger women to walk near to God and to fulfill their callings. It's a, it's it's it, this is this is the calling, this is the expectation. The good is the character and the conduct that is supposed to adorn Christian women. Teacher of good? The good is, is the character and the conduct that is supposed to adorn Christian women. The aim and the desire of the older woman should be to grow in godly character and then effectively train younger women in godly femininity and in their calling. And how are they to train them? Train the young women to love their husbands and their children. Now... Why would a young woman need to be trained to love their husband and their children? Doesn't this just come naturally for a Christian? Well, we always want to hold high the the calling of motherhood. It is a high calling. It is a wonderful calling. Children are a gift from the Lord. But we want to be careful that we don't overly romanticize it. Motherhood and home management are pure service Amy's workday begins at 5:45 in the morning and it doesn't stop till 9:30 p.m. at night last night as we're going to bed she's on her laptop looking up something to help Colton with on his school project so her her day her workday didn't end until closed the laptop and she rolls over and goes to bed the the workday's all day it is pure service and in the midst of that day-to-day labor it's hard sometimes to love those who you are serving I mean, you love them in a sacrif- sacrificial, lay yourself down kind of sense, right? Providing for their needs and, and, and serving them in that way and giving yourself to them to, to provide for their needs in an agape sense. But the word here is actually phileo. It's not agape. The, the ladies apparently need to be trained in phileo, in the affection part of the loving of their husbands and their Children. This word refers to warm affection for your family. Older women who have come through the rigor of child rearing and home management need to come alongside the young women to help them learn how to love their husbands and kids with an affectionate love, not merely a dutiful service kind of love. That needs to be trained. And here's what is so encouraging. This is encouraging encouragement. Now I'm gonna broaden this principle out to everybody, but keeping it at the level of the, the ladies here. What we need to see here is that Paul is saying that it's not artificial. This is not an artificial kind of love. It's not artificial to need to be trained to have an affection for your children and your husband. You may struggle to love them from the heart. The good news is is that part of the discipleship process in the local church is to train the women who struggle in this area to genuinely over time experience a spirit-wrought affection for their husband and for their children. It can be happen. And it's part of the training process. Paul actually assumes that the women in the church will need help in this particular area. So the encouragement to you ladies is that if this is something you struggle with, there can be change. And it comes with the training of the older women. And the encouragement to all of us is that the disciples discipleship in Christ is a process of being trained. And because there are things that we struggle in our life that we have to put deliberate effort to. It doesn't make it less authentic. We can thank God that he puts means in place that we might grow in spirit rod affection for our families and, and grow in the, spiritual, the fruit of the Spirit in other areas. Older ladies, you're to also teach the, the younger ladies to be self-controlled. Self-controlled in eating, in her speech in her heart so that she's not beset with constant worrying and fretfulness and anxiety. This is a particularly difficult area for ladies. The fretfulness, the anxiety, the worry. And ladies, you can you can help the younger ladies get control over these things. Help them to see the good providence of God, the sovereignty of God, the wisdom of God over their life. The power of God over their life. The realities of a coming kingdom, and so on. Self-control would also include helping the younger women figure out when she might uh, spend time in God's word and prayer every day amidst the craziness of child rearing. Getting enough sleep, getting up when the alarm goes off, not spending extra time on entertainment, social media, and so on. These are things that the older woman who's come through a life of, of learning these things is now to pass on to the younger women. Also teaching them to be pure, Obviously, in the immediate context, this has to refer to marital fidelity, but also pure in her motives, pure in her speech, pure in her thought life, pure in what she watches and listens to. See, I think we kind of we we think about these things, and we're like, "I'll just get the book, I'll, I'll just get a book on this." And ladies, you go get a book, but what you need is not just the book; you need to get together with other women and the book. Okay? <laughs> Books are great. But what we're thinking is we're going to do this, and, and I'm, just, I'm going to take care of this on my own, and I'm going to get the book, and I'm going to read the book, and then I'm going to, I'm going to discipline myself. And there's, a, there's an element in which we, we, do need to, we do need to do that. But if we cut ourselves off and think that we're only going to handle these things on our own, then we are fooling ourselves. Older ladies are to teach the younger women to work well at home. The older ladies will have a storehouse of wisdom for managing daily and weekly functions of the household and having a fruitful, productive home. But this training will also include helping the young women to see the value of their calling and the high privilege they have as mommies to deeply influence the next generation. And this is so important, older ladies, for you to encourage young ladies at this point because the culture despises this very thing, by and large. And yet this is what Scripture calls the young ladies to. So encourage them. Be a a defense between them and the culture that's telling them that they're wasting their lives at home. And remind them that they are fulfilling God's calling on their life and being pleasing to their heavenly father, Father, who will aptly reward them when the time is right. The older ladies need to teach the younger women how to be kind as well, kind to their children, kind to their neighbors, kind to the people in the community. The word here, kind, is translated elsewhere as good, so it has the connotation of wholesomeness. But ladies are to be kind with their words, Proverbs 31, 26. She opens her mouth with wisdom. The teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She's to be proactively kind in her deeds, Proverbs 31:20: She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. And again, so much of this is caught more than it's taught. This is not to draw a distinction between actual formal teaching and life on life, but we do need to recognize the power of godly example. There's power in it. And I know I've said this before. You can tell it's had an impact on me because I've shared this example with you in uh, in a sermon, and I've also shared it a few times with the young adults, so you're just going to have to bear with me again with this illustration. But... When we were in Louisville, I had a friend who went through a tremendously difficult trial. He's a husband, five kids, and a relative in uh, their family, an extended relative, began to slander him grievously, grievously telling lies of the most atrocious sort, and it eventually got him into some legal trouble. And I had the privilege, he, we worked together together, Uh, often on the same job. And so I got the privilege of walking alongside of this man as he was slandered mercilessly by someone who was to be his advocate and friend and to see these, these slanderous things affect his wife and his children and even get him into legal trouble. And yet he walked with steadiness and calmness and godliness. He never got angry with God. He trusted the Lord. He was prayerful. He was grieved, but he never blasphemed. He was trusting the Lord. He even had the wherewithal to kind of even enjoy the little things of life as God's little comforts as he was suffering. It was just an incredible experience for me. There was a power in his godly example that I think affected me. Truly, indelibly. Which is why I'm still telling the same illustration time after time after time. Because there's power in a godly example. Yes, we need clear teaching from the Word of God, and I will die before we give that up. However, it's not just that. It also has to make its way into the lives of the older people in the congregation so that they can be examples to the other members of the congregation. That is what a healthy church will look like. Finally, older ladies are to help the women walk in godly submission to their husband's leadership. The younger women need wisdom and guidance here on how to submit to their husbands. It's not easy, and some of us guys don't make it easy. You need to know that you need wisdom and how to talk to the ladies. Need wisdom and how to talk to their husbands when they disagree about a decision. Anybody learning that? How to navigate that? That's a challenging area. I want to submit to my husband, but how do I how do I discuss disagreements in a way that doesn't undermine his leadership? How how The ladies need to know how to trust their husbands and follow their leadership, how to influence their husbands in a godly direction without usurping their role as head of the home. It takes a massive amount of wisdom to navigate these difficult questions. And who's going to show the ladies the nitty-gritty practical wisdom of how to do that than other women? Well, why help the women in this way? Well, it's your expectation, it's your calling, ladies. But also, you see it here, there's, there's an important piece as well, that the word of God may not be reviled. The word of God may not be reviled. When this kind of character is being developed in the local church, the word of God is seen as powerful and effective. The gospel is seen as powerful and effective. It's real. It really does something. Right? It's not just some religion. right? It actually does something in the life of people. But for the younger women to reject this kind of life will throw the gospel into disrepute. The gospel will be reviled by unbelievers who conclude that Christianity is just like any other religion. It doesn't produce happy, productive, harmonious, grace-filled lives and homes. That's what the conclusion will be. So this is vital. It's not an option. It's an expectation, and this is what it leads to. So ladies of CBC, the younger women need you. If your children are out of the home and you you have some extra time to spend in discipling other women, then then give yourself to this because this is the expectation for older women in the church. This is the expectation. This is the calling. You are to be a teacher of what is good. Interestingly, when Paul addresses the calling of older women in the congregation. And he's casting a vision for what this looks like among the ladies. He doesn't mention grandchildren. Now, grandchildren are a wonderful gift from the Lord. Proverbs 17, 6 says, Grandchildren are the crown of the aged. And Paul himself, in 1 Timothy 5, 4, will imply by what he says about grandchildren and widows, he will imply that the godly woman will have a good relationship with her grandchildren. And then he actually exalts grandmotherhood in 2 uh, uh, Timothy 1.5 when he talks about Timothy's grandmother being the one alongside the mom to teach Timothy the word of God. So a godly woman will desire to instill the truth of Christ into her grandchildren's life. She will. She will have a natural enjoyment of her grandchildren. This is just, this is just life. This is just a blessing of God. My parents and Amy's parents are both vitally in our kids' lives. They have a vital relationship with each of our children. And Amy and I want to have grandchildren someday. That's why we keep on telling our kids, like, how many kids do you want to have? Three, four, five? We'll take, you know, right, and we keep on increasing the number. We're, we're excited. We want grandchildren someday that we can pour into, okay, to influence for, the, for Christ's sake. But here's the key part. When Paul addresses specifically the ministry of older women in the church, he makes the training of younger women in that congregation the priority. Therefore, a Christian older woman's love for her grandchildren must not crowd out her obligation. That's what Paul's laying out here. It's not a suggestion. An obligation to pursue godliness and find ways to teach and train and disciple the women in her local church. Some might say, well, I'm doing that with my daughters. Great. That's great. But Paul is directing us to our local congregation. He's not saying you can't enjoy your grandchildren. Enjoy your grandchildren. He's not suggesting, for example, that you can't work after the kids are gone and out of the house. That's not what he's saying, and that's not what I'm suggesting. But here's the question you have to ask yourself. Are you fulfilling this clear instruction from the Lord in Titus 2 about what your life should look like with regards to your ministry in the church as an older woman? And again, we've already said why this is so vital. The young women need you. They want you. They want you to come alongside of them. They long for it. And it is a beautiful thing when it happens. And you know what it leads to? corporate health, if I might not add individual health as well. You will find a great joy in giving yourself to this kind of ministry. And you might be intimidated by everything I've just said, but it doesn't have to be complicated or intimidating. Begin by inviting some ladies over to your home. If it's easier, go to their home, go out to coffee, plan to go on a walk, proactively introduce yourself yourself to ladies in the church. If you want some introductions, I can introduce you to a whole load of ladies in our Young Professionals group. Older and younger ladies make plans to attend church-wide women's ministry fu- uh, functions so that you can get to know the older women in the church. Younger ladies reach out to the older ladies of the church. Use fellowship meals to spend time together. It's a great time to just have conversation over a meal. Now, Paul puts this in the context of child-rearing and in, in parenting because there's likely some things going on in this particular congregation where it said in verse 11, there are people who are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. So he's talking specifically about this discipleship happening, discipleship happening within the context of the family. But this doesn't exclude older women from, women from training younger single women. It doesn't exclude older single women from training younger single women. We're talking about discipleship, female discipleship. As we already saw, although a woman may not be married, the instruction and training here that Paul emphasizes is applicable to single women as well. Purity, kindness, self-control, and even wisdom for marriage. And these things can be happening among the single and the married women in the church. But we must see that a healthy church prioritizes this kind of discipleship. A healthy church prioritizes female discipleship. Well, let's just click through these last ones very quickly. A healthy church is filled with mature young men. It's filled with mature young men. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. There it is. Just get them to be self-controlled, and most things will work themselves out. And if you're breathing the cultural air of low expectations in this, if you've kind of embraced uncritically this artificial category of adolescence, which is the so-called intermediate stage between childhood and adulthood, which just, interestingly enough, keeps increasing, by the way. We just keep increasing it till, however, I think now it's like 28 or something like that. It's, it's, a, it's an artificial category. It's not a biblical category. And in Scripture, you have children, and you have young men, and you have older men. But if that is the air we're breathing, we might hear this phrase, mature young men, and, and think there's a contradiction in terms. But there's not a contradiction here. One of the main marks of immaturity for young men is a lack of self-control. The way they eat, talk, use their bodies, care for themselves... Manage their living space, spend their money, indulge in entertainment, treat women, and so on. So if you can get self-control taken care of, just about everything else in the life will move in the right direction. Isn't that great? Isn't that encouraging? So urge the men, the young men, to be self-controlled. Now what about discipleship? Well, the discipleship is implied here. He speaks specifically to female discipleship, but the word likewise tells us that Paul has in mind the same kind of structural discipleship that he mentioned with the women, he says, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. When he used that word likewise up above, he said women likewise. And he's, that is to connect to the previous verses about the men. Likewise, women, you're to be holy in your character and conduct. Then, and then he addresses the women. They're supposed to be holy and then also to disciple the ladies. And then in verse 6, likewise, urge the younger men, which is to connect to the previous verses about discipleship in the, the female context to then talk about the men, the young men. So the discipleship, guy to guy, is implied here. Also, he's addressing Titus, who is a man, to urge the younger men to be self-controlled. So the the discipleship is supposed to be happening on both sides, men to men and women to women. He's just very explicit and clear uh, and detailed about how it should be happening among the ladies. So a healthy church blends sound doctrine with real life. It's populated with older godly men. It prioritizes female discipleship. It's filled with mature young men, and finally, it's led by godly shepherds, and this is where we will end for today. It's led by godly shepherds, and these godly shepherds are those who are a model of good works, and they teach with integrity. It's interesting here, I find, that Paul distinguishes between good works and teaching, so that a pastor is to be a model of good works and have integrity in his teaching, Teaching, therefore, is not to be equated with good works, as though I fulfilled my calling if I'm just teaching all the time and not doing other things, in terms of good works. A pastor's, a godly pastor's life will consist of more than just good teaching. It will consist of good works among his family members, how he loves his wife and raises his children. It will consist of good works and how he cares for the saints in the local body. I think Cliff is just an excellent example of this. He just knows everyone in the congregation, all that's happening in their life, and it just constantly ministering to them in a very hands-on, practical way. And I know many of you have experienced that. And I don't want him to be embarrassed. I just think that's really the case. He's just an excellent shepherd. And so there, there's an example. It will consist of good works in the community and how he loves his unbelieving neighbors and meets various needs. But he will also be someone who is, has integrity in his teaching. What does this mean? Well, at the very least, it means that you're teaching truth, teaching that which accords with biblical doctrine and conforms to the historic Christian faith. But it also means that the, the godly preacher doesn't have major gaps between what he teaches and his life. Now, of course, as a pastor, it's nigh impossible to live up to everything that you preach, but it's exceedingly difficult. Let's just, let's be, let's just be honest, right? And, and we don't live up all the time to what we, we preach, but there can't be major gaps between what we teach and how we live. It means that you're not teaching one thing in one setting and something different in another setting to please these people over here and to please those people over here. That's not teaching with integrity. But it also think, I means, it means being willing to say when you are wrong and repent and change your position to what is right. And I just find very few men are willing to do this. Very few teachers. I just, it's just a rare person, you, a rare teacher that you find that says, yeah, I was wrong about this, and now I've changed my position, and now this is what I teach, and these are the reasons why. Or in a, in a setting where they're teaching and they're you called out, hey, this, this verse was wrong or whatever, and the, the temptation is to, to double down and be like, no, right? But teaching with integrity means admitting when you were wrong and, and changing it to be right. But it also means, here he says, to be sound in speech that cannot be condemned. Crude joking Off-color jokes, cursing, foul language, sensual illustrations are never to find their way into the pulpit or the lectern, ever. Opponents of Christianity will always be looking for a way to speak evil of the church, and the, the pastor must make sure that they never give them fodder for their accusations. Paul's not saying that we can't address cultural issues and saying a very clear biblical statement that is otherwise unpopular, but in the way we do it, we must not be unwholesome In our speech. And as we'll look at next week. This is important for the church's witness. So that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. So the healthy church has an outward witness as well. And the pastor needs to be concerned about this. And those who work also who are Christians who in the work setting have to be concerned about this. And that's exactly what we will be discussing next week. And then finally bringing it to the root of all of this. Namely, the grace of God. This is not something we produce or pursue in our own strength, our own power, or our own wisdom. It begins by the gospel of Jesus Christ. It begins by having your sins forgiven. And I could could preach through this because, because I know that our congregation is made up of believers who know and believe this gospel. And so we didn't address that gospel specifically in today's message, but we are going to next week to show that even this health of this, the local body cannot be separated from the gospel, the gospel of the grace of God in Christ Jesus. So that's what we're going to address next week. Go through verses 14, and we'll wrap up our two-week series next Sunday. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for all that it has given to us in terms of its health and power. And God, we just pray that you'd help us to apply these truths. Help us to take the sharp words that we've had to hear today and apply them. Give us grace to do that. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.